Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. Well, welcome back to our conversation today about type 2 diabetes and the trials and drugs around that. Dr. Michael Corrin and Sharon Smith. Thank you, guys. Um, we've been learning a lot about these type 2 diabetes drugs and and how far they've really come. What's a real world case that you mean, you've you mean, seen? You mean these cardiology drugs the, that, I'm sorry, that other people are stealing I, from I'm me? I'm very sorry. The endocrinologists are just taking it all away I can't believe you. that. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, it's a funny thing just to, to start off on some of the politics of medicine is for a long time, uh, cardiologists were seeing these data come out, but they were really nervous about prescribing anything that was perceived as a diabetes drug. And they would be stepping on the toes of people who refer patients to them and they were concerned about that and, and whether or not they would be practicing outside of their scope of mm -hmm. expertise and all these kind of concerns. And for some people that was certainly the case. But as I was looking at it, I'm seeing drugs that we're working with in clinical research actually having these incredible cardiovascular benefits, which were really a side effect. Mm -hmm. Again, these were cardiovascular safety studies of diabetic drugs. And it turns out that they're not only safe, they actually prevent heart attacks and strokes and in there some cases win, help, win. help people live longer. Yeah. So I'm looking at this and you know I'm saying, how can I not say something? So there's always a little bit of um, a touchiness with a specialist like a cardiologist telling somebody, uh, well, maybe uh, you, know, you talk to your physician about changing your insulin or your uh, glimepiride to something else. <laughs> and um, especially since you have coronary disease and your ejection fraction is below what it should be, the muscle mm -hmm. function of your heart. So these became little touchy things. But uh, in the last year or two, the biggest names in the cardiovascular world have said, you know, these are, these are heart drugs now. Okay. So um, you should not feel reluctant to prescribe them. You should not feel reluctant to talk about them. And in fact, they're just as important as the drugs we use for hypertension and other traditional drugs for congestive heart failure. So we're seeing this huge paradigm shift amongst physicians not everybody yet, but most physicians, um, most cardiologists, I should say, feel comfortable now getting into that space. And I think most of the other specialists are more than happy to work with cardiologists on these issues, assess cardiac risk, and certainly consult with cardiologists as necessary. I hope well, so. the trials for non-diabetics were started almost immediately when you started seeing those results, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, they were first studied in diabetics. And then when they saw this unintended consequence of improved cardiovascular outcomes, they said, oh my God let's start to look at non-diabetics. Mm -hmm. So again, we have lots of data in non-diabetics on these quote diabetic drugs, both for weight loss, which is the primary positive side effect of GLP-1s mm -hmm. and for cardiovascular benefits, which is the primary off-target effect, if you will, of the SGLT2 class. All right. So you want to get into like a real, a real world case? Real world case. Okay. I'm going to kind of make this up. So what, what is those? <laughs> I'm going to test you, it's a Sharon. real world. Yeah. Made you, you, know, uh, what, you know, that disclaimer that you get on all novels that if, if, if there's anybody out there that's like yes. this person, yes. it was purely coincidence. Yes. yes. Okay. So, okay. We have a, a 50 year old attorney. Okay. Okay. And um, he's a social friend of yours. Okay. And He's uh, a, a little bit uh, too short for his weight. So, 
So his, so his BMI, his is... BMI say 32. Okay. Okay. And, um, he doesn't lo- love doctors. He has nothing against them, but he's a busy guy. And, um, he, but he gets, uh, some blood work done by his primary care physician and, uh, his hemoglobin A1C is 6.4. And, um, he's excited. He said, well, at least I'm not diabetic. He tells you. And um, the fasting glucose was 137, okay. just making that up. And uh, he he likes to exercise, but he's always so busy and he's stressed and his kids are in high school and um, he's just you're trying to figure out how to keep everybody happy and, and do his job and, and, and play golf and, um, you know, drink beer with his friends, you know, on the weekends. Okay. Okay. So okay. good old. Good old guy. So anyhow, so he comes to you and he says, uh, yeah, by the way, my blood pressure is up a little bit. It was like 149 over 96. But my doctor says, uh, are you willing to do more with diet and exercise? And I say, and he says, yes. And once he said diet and exercise, he said, I'm going to go to my best buddy, Sharon, to get me straight. Okay. All right. So here's, he's in front of you. How do you deal with this? Did the doctor order any medications yet? Well, Okay, so you're asking a good question. So the doctor suggested medications, but the patient said, I don't want to take them. Okay, what did he suggest? We'll get to that in okay. a second. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I'm going to tell you that um, his hemoglobin A1C, I would call him insulin resistant, type 2 diabetes, fasting blood sugar was too high. So he's already got that. I would explain that to him, that I look at you as being a diabetic at this point, mm-hmm. even though technically you're not. Um, and so, insulin- and just to make that point clear, uh, like 6.5, it used to be 7.0 was the cut point for diabetes that was lowered some years ago to 6.5. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's this argument of if even lower is really truly diabetes or is it pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. There's a lot of terms and whether or not those terms are really meaningful. Well, I would consider type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes equal to insulin resistance, which is equal to a carbohydrate intolerance. I would tell you that low glycemic foods or high glycemic that raise our blood sugars the most and lead us there. So I'm going to say you have a carbohydrate intolerance, just like people with lactose intolerance. You can, you know, you can't eat them as much or then we'd go into later on adding the protein, adding the fiber, big salad with your carb. You can do better. Instead of like a lot of pasta and bread. Those are all high glycemic. They're going to raise your blood sugar really quick. If you had, it's interesting. There was a study. If you had, um, meatballs so you had meatballs with your pasta and you had three big meatballs and then a salad and then a small amount of pasta your blood sugar would not go as high as if you ate the pasta first and then the salad so food order we've kind of been studying trying to get that heavy protein or fiber in your stomach first so i talk about his food what does he eat is he eating a lot of high carbohydrates um go over diet, try to give them some tips. I don't take away food. I try to teach them a healthier way to eat it. You can have it, but just maybe not everything in that day. It's maybe over a week. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is stress. Stress raises your blood sugar incredibly. We have a non-diabetic that was in our office that was wearing a CGM one day, continuous glucose monitor. She's hanging out there at 70s, 80s, 90s. She's not diabetic, remember. But a physician came in and got all excited and was a little bit demanding and asking a lot of things. And, and she dealt with her for for 30 minutes and then the physician left and she had a 50 point jump in that blood sugar mm. just from the stress wow. of someone mm-hmm. coming in. So stress, sleep is huge. I don't think attorneys sleep that much as well. I don't know, but I would address your sleep because if you know, if you did not have a good night's sleep, they tend to crave carbs more and you mm. crave 
less healthy food. That's so good I would look at all of it and then exercise. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would find a way to find something that he enjoys doing to try to fit it in regularly. And this is before um, any medication. Before any medication. And then even before medication still, I would ask him to get a continuous glucose monitor. He can afford it because he's an attorney, right? He's a good attorney. And without insurance, not being diabetic, you can, you'll pay like $75 a month. And I would let him see what changes in his, I would show him the data because we know with the data, we really Mm -hmm. get behavior change a little bit more from people, especially an educated person like that. And then I would send him back to his doctor for drugs. (laughs) Don't know if he can do it all with lifestyle or if he's willing, you know, what are you willing? How long would you monitor him before that? I would at least a couple months. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. A couple months. Yeah. So this is a, a, a very interesting part of the psychology of taking care of patients. And one of the reasons I mentioned this particular case and said he wasn't on any drugs now is because it's a common desire of patients is to think they can take care of things without medication. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that psychologically, you probably want to take care of the things that put that person at risk immediately and then get them on lifestyle and then maybe pull back on the medications once they're successful. And that's actually the safer way of dealing with it and the data-driven way of dealing with it. But it's human nature to say, okay, give me three months. Well, in the next three months, you know, this poor guy could get worse. He could have a heart attack, could have a stroke, could have other things. And those are preventable with some basically simple medications. So, for example, given this blood pressure, that would be a great concern. We know that diabetics are at very high risk of having hypertensive complications. But we also know that not all blood pressure medications are created equal when you treat diabetics. I mentioned that UK PDS study, and that was one of the first to look at differential effects of diabetes medications. But there have been other studies, and it turns out that certain classes of blood pressure-lowering medications just do better. Mm. So something called an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker tends to do better at, one, protecting diabetic patients and actually at glycemic control compared to other classes. In fact, um, when I was in in fellowship and and shortly thereafter, the data were coming out to suggest that the most important thing that you can do for a diabetic patient is treat their blood pressure. So if you look at the statistics, uh, everything that Sharon mentioned was great, but me giving him uh, a low dose of Losartan, for example, which is an angiotensin receptor blocker, would do as much or more than all that from a statistical basis. And that doesn't mean that that person has to be on that drug for the rest of their life, mm. but they'd have to get their BMI down. They'd have to get these other things in order before I would withdraw that drug. So psychologically, I would make the case for this patient that, hey, there's certain treatments that certainly you should be on. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't have any reason not to be on these drugs, I would definitely treat that blood pressure with something in the class that I mentioned. I'd probably put them on a baby aspirin. I'd have to know some about family history and other things and, and risk of bleeding, but a baby aspirin would be a, a safe and properly effective thing for this particular person. I would want to do some more screening to see what the complications were, maybe uh, do a stress test or look at coronary artery calcium, things of that nature to look at this person, which would be very, very important in the overall management. And then the other thing would be just explaining that these drugs that are, quote, diabetes drugs, you may not want to be on a diabetes drug, but you may be be on one of those weight loss drugs (laughs) that (laughs) happens to help everything get better. Right. So this gets into the salesmanship and these are flipping the script a little bit, but they're all true statements. So we can say that these GLP-1 drugs lower blood pressure. They do that. They improve cholesterol levels. They obviously improve blood glucose levels and now have been shown to have benefits for, for heart disease. 
And um, <clears throat> if the weight is a driving factor for this person, that would be a really, really good choice. Mm-hmm. Now, if it turns out that this person gets a little bit of a cardiac workup and the heart situation was a little bit worse than you think, let's say that you do an echocardiogram and this fellow has a, a thickened heart from high blood pressure and has evidence of what we call diastolic dysfunction or a stiff heart. Well, that's a case that would probably be treated with a G, uh, with an SGLT2 inhibitor because that person has early heart disease. And I would make the argument that that would be a, not only a good diabetes drug, but keep this person out of harm's way with regard to cardiovascular complications. So again, it would be unthinkable a few years ago to start a person like this on these products. But now it's, it's really not a crazy idea. In fact, so we've made, got them on Lasagna, Baby Aspirin, Farsiga, and Manjaro. And come back and see me in two months. Yeah, if they if you go for all those, <laughs> well, well, certainly uh, the low sartan, aspirin, and a diabetes drug that had some sort of benefit, either focused more on weight loss or focused more on cardiovascular protection. Absolutely, that that triple therapy yeah. would be something that I would strongly advocate. And it would motivate him to stick with, okay, this exercise, I can do this right. because I'm feeling better, I'm losing weight. And that's yeah. when you get into the headspace of it, too, yeah, yeah. And yeah. or the long-term the, care. And looking at the data, yeah. you know, oh, my blood sugar doesn't go as high with that. So, yeah. and, right. and then taking the, that particular anecdote and applying to what we do every day is that that person could be a great candidate for a clinical trial. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in those clinical trials, we have some of the benefits that were made mentioned, including continuous glucose monitors. So uh, an attorney should like data. An attorney would be in a trial where they would get data. Mm -hmm. We would typically be testing some sort of medication, but not necessarily. Sometimes we're actually testing devices. Mm -hmm. So for example, they could be doing a clinical trial where we're just doing cardiac monitoring the patients. There's a lot of um, stuff right now looking at watches and different things that are wearables to see what your your risk is. Mm -hmm. And somebody like this particular attorney would be a potentially at high risk and they can participate in a clinical trial just to get a better assessment of their risk. And just to clarify, no drug involved, just in that particular. But again, yeah. all the clinical trials Several are different, yeah. but that could be an entry point for this particular person. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do a lot of phase one studies. So you mentioned that uh, some people uh, have the resources to you know, buy a gym membership or do some things. Some people don't. So phase one study, we ask people to stay in-house for a period of time can be anywhere from overnight to a week. Mm. And uh, one of the advantages for people is that they get paid more for that because the concept is that we're actually hiring them to help us with the research. Mm. So they get a nice little check when they're Mm. done with that. And that could be a check that pays for their gym membership for the next year. Mm -hmm. And so that is looking at what the patient's needs are and hopefully using the clinical trial mechanism to help that person achieve their objectives. So it's kind of what we do and, and, Sharon is on top of that. Is there any, are there any particular trials that you're excited about that you want to mention? Um, yes, I'm really excited about the device trial for the exenatide. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited that we're going up in the semaglutide, higher doses for them. And the CGM and the heart failure trials are just devices that you're wearing and exactly data. Those are really exciting. But we are still enrolling in the flu study. There, well, you can never, you never forget about the flu. <laughs> and the flu has hit Jacksonville the last two weeks. I don't know exactly when this will air, but yep. today is November 11th, and the ERs have been full of the flu mm. for the last two weeks. Yeah, and in closing, I'll make one last pitch for clinical research. And, and I mentioned this before, but it's just such compelling information that I have to mention again. So when you talk to somebody that has had no exposure to clinical research, about 50 to 60% of Americans are open to the idea of research. 
and it's actually lower in Europe. It's only about 40% in Europe. But if you can get them into one trial and then you ask that question again, 97% are open for a second trial. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously something about the experience that makes people a fan. And I think at our site, it's 99. It is. Our patients love to go, and, and okay, I'm done with the trial. What's next? Thanks. All right. And well, th how do you get thanks, involved? Thanks for the plug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and with that, with that uh, know your glucose. Um, uh, think about elements of your lifestyle that are contributing to either good health or bad health. And if you're unfortunate enough to have an issue, come talk to us and learn about clinical trial options. Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data.